right. Good morning. If you would, go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to 1 John chapter 3, 16 through 18. First John 3, 16 through 18. The best stories involve great sacrifice. And our favorite heroes are the ones who make the ultimate sacrifice. They give up their life for their friends. So I don't know who comes to your mind when you think about that hero, but for me, it's Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Which I know not all of you are going to get, but those of you who get it, you get it. The Fellowship, they're battling impossible odds. They're having to fight their way out of a mine that's infested with orcs. And then things go from impossible to more impossible when the Belrog, this giant fiery monster, surfaces to crush the Fellowship. And as they fight their way to the exit, it becomes apparent they're not going to make it. So Gandalf... Looking at his friends, he knows what he needs to do. And so he turns back with just a staff and a sword to go face the Belrog one-on-one. This spelled out certain death for Gandalf. But it gave the fellowship just enough time to escape. The ultimate sacrifice. This morning, me in 1 John looking at Jesus' sacrifice for his friends. So 1 John... It was written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of John. You might remember that the Gospel of John was written so that his audience would believe in Jesus and have eternal life. First John was written to build on this. It was written so that the believers might know that they have eternal life and they might forsake sin. This morning, we're going to see one of the proofs that you really belong to Jesus. And it's this, that we have a Christ-like love for one another. Jesus didn't just tell us that he loved us, but he actually showed us that he loved us by laying down his life for us. He didn't just talk a good talk. He actually walked the walk. And brothers and sisters, we ought to love one another in the same way. So my argument this morning is very simple. Don't just love in words, but love in works. Don't just love in words, but love and works. So with that, let's read our text, and then we'll pray. First John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. We acknowledge that we are weak. I acknowledge that I am not some amazing preacher who can do the work of fixing people's hearts to love you the way that you ask us to love you. And we know that as we sit in these pews that we don't love you the way that we should. We are not the way we're supposed to be. We are weak. But Father, you give us this good grace, the grace of your word. So would you come and by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts that we might love you and love one another the way that we should. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever tried to explain the word love to somebody? It's very, very, very hard. So if I asked everyone in this room to define love, we would find a very wide range of answers. We know that we love love, but what is it? Is it just a feeling like butterflies in your stomach whenever you're around that special someone? Is love just sexual? Does love mean you like something a lot? Like I love soccer? What about love for a good friend? How does, how does that fit into all of this? Well, the truth is, the English word love has a wide range of meanings depending on the context. I love soccer, I love Blaine, you know it, and I love my wife, and she knows it more, right? Because love doesn't mean the same thing in each of those sentences. But in verse 16, 
John isn't trying to define all of the different ways that the word love, love is used. That's not his goal. His goal is that we would know the love of God. Look at the first half of verse 16. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So, of course, hope it's clear to you that he here, in verse 16, is Jesus. So John's goal is to define the love of God, the ultimate love of God, the love of God for sinners. By this we know God's love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. So what that means then is in order for us to know what God's love is like, we need to meditate on Jesus' sacrifice for us. And here's what we learn. God's love is a deep affection that leads to selfless actions for the benefit of another. I'm going to read that again. God's love is a deep affection that leads to selfless actions for the benefit of another. So let's look at God's love from three angles. First, God's love is an action. So when I talk about God's love, I don't mean that God is up in heaven writing us sappy love letters and making a bunch of sweet, frothy, weightless promises. No. God shows us that love isn't just something sweet that you say, but it's something costly that you do. Love is self-sacrifice for the good of another. So to see this, it's important for us to remember that God isn't lacking in anything. It's not as if God needs something for mankind. This isn't a, 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 a I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine kind of situation. Rather, it is mankind who is in desperate need of something from God. God is the king. We are the paupers. God is rich. We are poor. We've got the problem, and God has the only solution. And what we learn in the scriptures is that God is perfectly holy, which is great. It's wonderful. It deserves our praise. But it also means that he cannot be in the presence of sin. And that's bad news for you, and that's bad news for me. From the moment we are conceived, we are born into sin. We are at war with God. We are hostile towards him. We are rebellious down to our very core. We're like germs. And one day we're going to stand before the blazing purity of God's holiness. And it will be the worst, most terrifying day for many, many people. But, it's a big, important but. But in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Meaning, Jesus was sent to satisfy God's wrath. Our biggest problem has been addressed by God. But friends, God loves us. And he hasn't loved us because he needs something from us. No, far from it. We are the ones who desperately need something from him. Enter the love of God. Listen to Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If someone broke into my house, I would not hesitate to take a bullet for my wife. But I would be hard-pressed to, to, to take a bullet for that burglar. Well, while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, 
While we were enemies of God, ungodly and hostile, constantly living in sin moment after moment, God proved his love for us by dying for us. Jesus took the bullet for his enemies. Jesus faced our Belrog-sized problem so that we might escape God's punishment for our sin. And we weren't even his friends. How did he do this? Well, he took on human flesh. He came down to earth. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He never committed a single sin. And then, to use the language of 1 John, he laid down his life in our place. He died for us. And he did it so that God's punishment would not be on us, but it would be punished in his flesh. And now we have forgiveness for our trespasses and sins. That's good news. It's the gospel. There is no greater cost than laying your life down for someone else. Look at how God's love pushes past all limitations. God held nothing back to do us good. And so he gave us Jesus for our benefit. And this is what I'm driving at. Jesus showed us that love is self-sacrifice for the good of another. And now you and I have a solution to our greatest problem. We can put on the righteousness of Christ and stand before God on judgment day. And we will be judged righteous not because of our works, but because of what Jesus did on our behalf. After his death, the story doesn't end. Jesus was buried, and he rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin. And now, if you repent, and if you believe, you will be forgiven for your sin. You will be saved. What amazing love. What an astonishing cost. What a glorious benefit it is for sinners. God's love is an action the most incredible self-sacrificing action in the universe. So look at God's love from one more angle. Oh, first, I want to back up, sorry. Don't want us to miss this at all. Self-sacrificing love, if, you, if you're following this, what also makes it so amazing is that it's willingly carried out. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. But then he adds a little later, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And then Isaiah 53.10 tells us that it pleased God to crush his son for the forgiveness of our sins. It was God's will to make this sacrifice, the most costly sacrifice for our good. But why? What would motivate God to willingly take such extreme measures for our good? And that brings us to the second angle from which I want to view God's love. God's love is also a feeling. Jesus' sacrifice shows us that love as an action shows from love as an affection. Because I have a wonderful mystery to share with you. God is mindful of you. God cares about you. God loves you. And he wants you. Listen to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If God did not have a tender love for you and for me, he would not have sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Ephesians 1.5 tells us that in love he predestined us to be redeemed by Jesus' blood. One of the things that motivated God to predestine you for salvation is his love for you. His love for you personally. Before you were even a thought in your mother's mind, God was thinking about you. And he saw you and he said, I love you. 
and I want you to be mine. Jesus tells us that there's rejoicing in heaven when even just one sinner repents and is saved. Have you ever asked yourself, why is there rejoicing? Well, it's because God is affectionate for you. Consider the shepherd who out of love will leave the 99 to go hunt down the one sheep that is lost. Well, this parable God is explaining that he has a desire for us to bring us back because we are precious to him. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. The son leaves his father. He goes and lives out in the world, and it's an absolute disaster. But when he comes back, what does the father do? He throws a feast. He celebrates with his son. What is God trying to communicate to us in that parable? Well, part of what he's communicating is that God has a loving affection for us, like a father for his son. So we see then that God's love, yes, it's self-sacrifice, but it's a deep affection that leads to self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. That is, because God loves you, he died for you. But I want to look at love from one more angle. God's love is made personal. So we've seen the example of God's love. We can look and observe what Jesus has done. That's what it says in verse 16. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. So John's saying, so go look at what that means. It's part of what we just did. But that's not the only way that we know the love of God. It's not just something that God showed us out there. But it's something that God actually puts in here. He didn't just show us an example of love, but he, ha- he actually has to take that love and put it in our hearts. Meaning, if you are saved, God has supernaturally called you to experience this love for yourself. And he causes it to change you. It's kind of like a trainer who shows you the perfect form for a squat and then gets behind you and helps you do your own reps so you can experience it for yourself. So listen to Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes And be careful to obey my rules. So when Jesus died for us, because he loved us, he made a way for God to give us a heart of flesh. And he made a way for God to give us the Holy Spirit. And now, deep down, we really know what it means that God loves us. Romans 5 tells us that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus made a way for us to receive the Holy Spirit, what came along with that was this personal, subjective experience of God loves you, and he poured it into us like a cup, and we're filled up with the love of God. Another place, Romans and Galatians, tells us that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that God is Abba, Father. He causes us to know that God is our dad and that we are his precious child. That's the work of Jesus that we might know the love of God. And then as a result, we're made sensitive to God's command. We're empowered to obey him, which in our case means we're empowered to obey the command to love one another as God loves us. So by Jesus' sacrifice, we know, we really know what the love of God is. God's love is made personal. So, brothers and sisters, we've seen and we have experienced the love of God. We know God's love. But God doesn't want us just to know love. This isn't a factoid that we need to keep in our back pocket for trivia night. This is deeply practical. God wants us to use this knowledge. He wants us to do something. So look with me at the second half of verse 16. Just as Christ laid in his life for us, so also 
we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, one question we've got to ask is, who are the brothers? Well, the brothers are fellow Christians, other believers. So, of course, in general, we know that we need to love everyone, love the world. But God is especially eager that we would love the brothers. So John was doing here and giving, saying, Jesus did this, now go and love the brothers likewise. He's, he's repeating something Jesus has said in John 15, 12 through 13. Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. What kind of love is that? He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So there we have it. We've got verse 16. We know the love of God, and now we know that we need to go and love the brothers in the same way. But what does that look like? What does that, what does that mean? Well, first, let me do what John does and tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like just saying that you love somebody and then not backing it up with your actions. So look at the first half of verse 18. He says, let us not love in word or talk. Interesting. Now, John doesn't mean that you should never say loving things and that our language is irrelevant to our love. But he means you can't love in only word or talk. Reminds me of James chapter 2, 15 through 16, which Amber read for us. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And the answer, of course, is that that's worthless. That's no good at all. John gives us his own example of this kind of love back in verse 17. So back up to verse 17. Look there. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? All right, so let's kind of parse this out. You've got someone who claims to be a Christian, and they have the world's goods. They've got money, they've got clothes, they've got food. And this professing Christian comes to church one day, and he sees a brother, a fellow church member. And this brother is in need. Maybe the brother needs some money so he can pay his bills. Maybe he's cold. Maybe he hasn't eaten in three days. And then the professing Christian, who knows his brother is in need, doesn't give him any help. Instead of holding out his hand and giving him the world's goods so that this brother will be taken care of, he closes his fist and then he pulls it into his chest. He's selfish. But notice what John says. He doesn't say that he closes his fist. What does he say? He says, that he closes his heart against him. He did close his fist, but why did he close his fist? Because his heart didn't have any love for his brother. The selfishness of the professing Christian is motivated by a lack of affection, a lack of loving affection for his brother. In fact, he is doing the exact opposite of love. So if Love is an affection that leads to a selfless action. Then hatred is closing your heart against someone, leading you to a selfish action. That's exactly what this guy demonstrates. Then John makes a devastating conclusion. This professing Christian, who lacks love for his brother in need, proves that he's no Christian at all. John says, how does God's love abide in him? That is, how can he say that he really knows the love of God if he can look at a fellow brother in need and say, I don't care? And the answer is, of course, he can't say that he knows the love of God. The love of God must not actually abide in this person or be in this person at all. He hasn't experienced the personal love of God that we talked about a moment ago. And think about that. I mean, that seems kind of obvious when you work it out. If you are aware of your guilt before God and you're aware of the cost 
and you've experienced that love for yourself and you know how much God loves you and what he did to save you, then how can you not look at your brother who is the very body of Christ and love him and love him like you actually mean it? It's very similar to what God says about forgiveness. Only those who have been forgiven can forgive. If you've been forgiven, then you can forgive much and you must forgive much. Well, in the same way, only those who know the love of God can actually give it. You can't, get, you can't give what you don't got. Yeah, I know that's not grammatical, but it's true. You can't give what you don't got. It's a good time to point out what Jesus said about loving fellow believers in Matthew 25. So this is how I want you to turn there. Turn to Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Keep your finger in 1 John. If you experience the love of God, then you'll love your brother. Matthew 25 points out, Jesus points out, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, this is, this is Jesus talking to them on Judgment Day. And the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or, or see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When Jesus talks about caring for the least of these that are his brothers, he's talking about his fellow disciples. Whoever would give a cup of water to the least of these my disciples, he says elsewhere. That is, he's talking about our brothers and sisters. He's talking about fellow Christians. So Jesus is saying, if you truly love me, then that means you really, you must truly be loving and taking care of the body, other Christians, one another. If you say you love God, but you neglect the least of these, then how can you say that you love God? And you can't. And remember, too, that that was why First John was written, so that you would not sin and so that you might know that you have eternal life. Well, here's one of the tests. Does your love for the body confirm or challenge your profession of faith? How are you doing with that? Sobering truth for us all to consider this morning. Okay. So don't love your brothers and sisters like the guy in verse 17. Got that. But still we're left asking positively, how should I love? What do I need to do? Well, John's already told us in verse 16 a part of it, right, the, the big chunk of it, that we have to lay down our lives for our brothers like Jesus. So that means we need to cultivate an affection for the church, and then we need to be willing to actually make self-sacrifices and love one another, love one another without limitations, die to ourselves like Jesus died so that we might uh, put uh, one another ahead of ourselves. That's what we learned there. But John fleshes this out just a little more. We're almost there. We're about to really start plowing into the application. How do we do this? John says a little more in verse 18, the latter half, to help interpret what he was saying in verse 16. Here's what he says there. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So what John is saying here for us, helping interpret what he said in verse 16, is that loving like Jesus, it's more than just talk. It doesn't just say, go in peace, be filled, be warmed but it actually backs up those loving words with loving actions. That's pretty simple to understand. Don't love with just words. Do something like Jesus did. That's what he's saying. But again, I just want to also make sure we're clear here. John doesn't mean that we don't love with words too. So in verse 18, John seems to be distinguishing between words that are 
worthless, that are pointless talk with words that are told in the truth. We've all experienced that. We know that the only way to love isn't just with actions. Sometimes we come along with people and we say loving things. It's a very important part of uh, loving one another. So here's, here's John's main point. Loving like Jesus means we don't love with worthless words, but we love with our actions and with true words. So, if you know the love of Jesus, then we ought to love one another like that. So do you? Do you love your church like that? Do you have an affection for your siblings? And does that affection lead you to make loving sacrifices for their good? Think about it. Are you willing to give up all of your talent and your treasure and your time for one another? Are you doing that? Consider that Jesus' sacrifice left no room for doubt. Very clear. He said, I loved you, or he says he loves us, and he backed it up. He gave everything. He loved that limitations. So, I want to close out our time by examining just five ways. We could look at a hundred ways, but just five ways that we can love one another, not just in word, but also in works. So first, give generously. This application's the most on the nose. I mean, we've, we've been seeing it right here in First John. <laughs> if you love your brother, you will not let him go without. So that means if you see that a brother or sister in the church has a material need, consider providing for them financially. So yeah, there's qualifications to that. Sometimes helping hurts. We don't want to enable bad behavior, all of those important things. But for this point, let's just assume, let's just assume that that's not an issue. Okay. Do you realize that it's your job to lovingly take care of your brother and sister's needs? It's not just the government's job. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just a committee's job. It's your job too. You're on the hook. In Acts chapter 2, what did the early church do? When they got saved and they were baptized and they formed a church, there were people out there who were selling their homes because there were other members who had needs. And they're like, I'll do it. I'll sell everything I have. And I'll give it to that brother so that they're taken care of so that we can love and worship together. And we'll all do it with a full tummy. That's love. That's amazing. And we, we hear something like that and we're like, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Thankfully that happened at Pentecost, right? No. No, that's something that it's normalized. Radical generosity in the Bible is something that is expected of Christians. We see it in faithful Christians throughout the New Testament constantly. It is normal. So am I saying that you have to sell your house? No. But am I saying that that is outside the purview of faithfulness to love your brother and sister? No, it's not outside of their own possibilities. That's radical generosity. Other times, you know, sometimes giving is done through the church's benevolence fund. And that's fine. And you support the ministry and that's, that's part of where that money can go. It's a great thing. But practically speaking, it doesn't always work its, itself out like that. More often than not, you just become privy to a situation when you're living with one another. Someone just kind of lets you in on something that they're struggling with. They, they need help. So what are you going to do in that situation? Are you going to outsource that to somebody else? Or are you going to love them? Here's the temptation. The temptation is to say a lot of nice words. It's just to tell them, I'll be praying for you. And, and in so many words, we wouldn't say it this way, but kind of like, I just hope things magically get better. But that's not love. That's exactly the kind of thing that John is railing against in verse 17 and 18. Tell them you love them, sure. But step in. Don't close your heart against them. Don't do the opposite of love. Actually love them, even if it costs you, even if it hurts financially. Consider that Jesus, he became poor so that we might be rich in him. Well then, let's be rich towards everyone, especially our brothers who are in need. The second way we need to love one another, <clears throat> not just with words, but with work, 
is pray. You ever told someone you're going to pray for them without having the slightest inclination of actually taking the time to do it? Whoops. I know I've done that. I have done it way more times than I care to admit. And of course we mean well. It's a nice thing to say. It's a fine thing to actually just to say, but when there's no weight behind it, there's no, there's no meaning to your words, that's a problem. When it comes to prayer, we tell ourselves it's the thought that counts. Except it's not true at all. And ironically, it's, it's actually not very thoughtful to tell someone you're going to pray for them and then not pray for them. It's like me saying I'm thoughtful when I, it's a thought that counts when I give Jackie a gift, you know, give her an Arsenal jersey. It's a thought that counts. You haven't really given her a gift at all. You're just, you're not, it's not actually thoughtful. It's what John calls loving in word or talk. It's just useless chatter. But loving indeed in truth would mean strategically and intentionally making time and setting it aside so that you will sit down and seriously and thoughtfully pray for your brother or sister. Love often requires just that, just a sacrifice of time, a little bit of affection, a little bit of thoughtfulness. Go into your prayer closet, praying. Go into the throne of God, pleading for them. Let's go further with that. What I want to highlight is that your love for your brother or sister should incline you to want to pray for them. When your brother is in the thick of it and he's battling sexual temptation, and he actually goes so far as to call you and say, Brother, I need prayer. What, is, what happens to your heart? Do you well up with this love for them and say, I want to go to war with you? When your sister tells you that she's anxious, that she needs prayer, what happens in your heart? Do you well up with this desire to go to God and petition and say, Lord, would you help her? Would you calm her? Would you give her relief? When someone just tells you in passing, you know, like, work's been hard, marriage is hard, school is hard, are you moved for them? Because you have full access to the God of creation. And if you'll just take a few seconds sometimes, you can just step over and just pray. Ask God to help. Again, think about Jesus' example. Jesus pleads our case with his own blood. He came and died for us so that we might have an audience with God. And he is there pleading for us right now. Can we not, if Jesus will plead with his blood, plead for our brothers and sisters with our mouths? Love one another. Make time to pray for one another. Thirdly, third way we love and work and not just words. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So we love to quote that from Romans chapter 12, verse 15. We should. It's, it's a great verse. But it's a lot easier to say it than it is to actually do it, to live it out. Very often, love requires that we'll just, just stop for a second and then take a few minutes to just listen to someone's pain. Or it may mean that you just slow down and listen to someone tell you about something cool that's going on in their life and rejoice with them. No matter what it is, be slow to speak, quick to listen, eager to just feel with them. You know? Sometimes, though, Weeping and rejoicing with one another requires a much bigger commitment. And I get that, uh, you know, that life gets busy. And sometimes it's hard to make time. Sometimes we can't be somewhere. But sometimes we can be somewhere. And we just think we can't be there. We make time for the things that we love. Could it be that maybe we, we could gather to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who weep. But we're actually just not making a priority of one another. We make time for the things we love. Make time for a weeping and rejoicing brother and sister. So if someone has lost a loved one, try to be at the funeral. Try to be at the visitation. When someone has a baby shower, try to be there. When someone has a wedding, try to attend. 
and celebrate. Love at the very least, love that weeps and rejoices at the very least, shows up. Okay. But not only that. Not only does it show up, but love shows up emotionally sympathetic and attentive. Wives, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Right? It's, it doesn't just, oh, I attended the wedding. I, I did my job. That's, that's not love. Now, I understand that not everyone's personality is the same. We're not all going to be sympathetic in the same exact ways. But love is, in some sense, sympathetic and emotionally connected. It's not robotic. So again, consider that Jesus, he wept with Martha and Mary. Jesus, when we come together in heaven, he's going to be rejoicing with us. So we ought to feel genuine uh, sadness and genuine weeping with our brothers and sisters. And again, this is your brother or sister in the Lord. We care about what's going on in each other's lives. When something big happens in a family member's life, or even just something small that they care about a lot, we, we listen. That's a good thing. We'll do that with one another as well. But I've said that you need to feel a certain way. How can I say that? It's kind of perplexing. How can I stand up here and say that you ought to feel a certain way? Unfortunately, we can't just, you know, pull the lever of our emotions. We can't control our emotions like we can control our pinky finger. And yet the Bible is constantly telling us to feel a certain way. It says that our emotions ought to be something, as in we are commanded to feel a certain way. So when our emotions are not aligned with God's commands, what are we to do? Well, the first and most simple thing we must do is we must go to the Lord in prayer. We have to ask him for help. Lord, help me to feel the way that I should. I often pray these exact words. I'll pray, Lord, help me to love what you love and to hate what you hate. And then after you pray, consider going to the word. Do what John tells us here in verse 16. It says, by this you know love, that Jesus did this. Well, sometimes if our, if our affections aren't right, we just need to go meditate and say, God, look at what you did. By this you showed your love. You were affectionate. You were full of emotions for us. Help me to love like that. And then after all of that, you, you've done the means of grace, like praying and reading your scripture. Well, maybe your heart and emotions are still not feeling the way they ought to feel. Well, then when that happens, go do that thing anyways. <laughs> I don't feel the kind of rejoicing I should be feeling at this wedding, but I'm going to go, and, and I'm, I've asked the Lord to help fix my heart. You know, Lord, I'm sorry that my heart is not the way that it should be, but I'm going to be there, and I'm going to be faithful anyways. That's, that's what we do. So love one another. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Fourthly, fourth way that we show love is we show hospitality. So we break bread with those that we love. It's hardwired into human nature. And the reason is, is because we're made in the image of God, and that's what God, do, God does. So we see God breaking bread with uh, Abraham as the angel of the Lord. We see God dining with the Jewish elders on top of Mount Sinai. We see Jesus celebrating the Passover with his 12 disciples. And we know that Jesus gave up his life to reserve a seat for us at the table of the wedding feast. So it's not a surprise then that when we look at Acts chapter 2, again, we see that the early church, one of the first things they did is they started breaking bread together. They started gathering in each other's homes. Don't discount the power of a good meal with a good friend. Take a church member and invite them over. You might be amazed at how powerful it is in their life because no one wants to be left out. No one wants to be unwanted. No one likes to feel loneliness. So if you see a brother or sister and it's just someone that you say, I love you to, once a month, well, one easy way that you can back up those words is actually invite them over and just enjoy fellowship over a meal together. That will communicate to them that you don't just love them with your words, but that you really, really love them and want to spend time with them and you're willing to make a small sacrifice of time and money to do it. And it's a small sacrifice of time and money if you understand that hospitality is not the same thing as hosting. <laughs> Right? We're not trying to throw this elaborate party for each other every time we come over. It's just something simple. 
fellowship of our meal, good conversation. Let them know that you love them with your words and with your deeds. So we love one another by showing hospitality. The last one I want to mention is love holds each other accountable. In our church covenant, we agree to exercise a watchfulness over each other. And a big part of that watchfulness is helping each other fight sin. How are you doing with that? Helping your brothers and sisters fight sin. When the world is content to live in its filth and all of its sin, Jesus loved us so much that he came to us and he told us the truth about ourselves. and said, you need to turn away from these sins. You got to stop living like that. And they killed him because of what he said. When a sibling is living in sin, do you love them enough to go and talk to them? To, to confront them with their sin? We need to admonish one another. We need to admonish them. Hey, brother, you've got you've to stop doing that. You've got to put that to death. But we must do it with great patience. And very often we have to do it with a very thick skin. I mean, when you're confronted with your sin, it's, it's just not comfortable. Again, they killed Christ when he confronted them with their sin. We're going to rile each other up when we put our finger in, in someone's idols, right? It's just not comfortable. So sometimes what that then looks like is when you're correcting someone, it's like you're having an, an impromptu heart surgery right in front of them. It's bloody. It's messy. It's tough. But if they listen, they'll stay on track. They'll continue to grow in godliness, and that is worth it. So worth it. However, it's pretty simple. If you don't love your brother, there is no way that you would be willing to hold them accountable. It's just too hard. Why would you put up with any of that unless you have an actual affection for them? It's much easier to just promise tough love and then kind of keep everything at a distance. I'll admonish you. I'll make sure to hold you accountable and then secretly hope that we never have any opportunity to hold each other accountable. Well, that's not the loving thing to do. Love actually sacrifices time. It's strategic. It's intentional to be there for a brother and to help them. You get into the fray with them. And listen, I think we miss this. Your brother needs your tough love. He needs it. Satan wants to destroy your sibling. And the way that he very often does that, he'll just lead him off of the narrow path of life, onto the broad path of destruction, just laying little bread, breadcrumbs of small little sins, just leading them away. The next thing you know, they're lost. Next thing you know, we're at a members meeting, and we're saying, what happened? And we're having to discipline this person out of membership and hand them over to Satan. Well, we can get ahead of that. We love each other enough to just ask the hard question. Be available. Love each other enough to actually, from the other end, be transparent. Open yourselves up to correction. Let other people into your life. We need that. It could spare us from destruction. It does spare us from destruction. That's on an individual level, but also remember that Satan wants to destroy this church. A little bit of leaven ruins the whole lump of dough. Just letting that... Brother over there, you see what's going on, but you kind of turn a blind eye to it because you don't want the awkward situation. That can run away. It can ruin the church. Imagine someone has a gossip problem and you know about it, but you don't want to say anything. That thing will multiply like bacteria and it, can, it will tear everything apart. But it's our job, it's your job to love them enough to go have that hard conversation. All qualifications in place. I've mentioned before, we're not little sin detectives, of course. We're not, we're not trying to get in there and stir things up and make a problem. But very often, you probably know that sin that you need to address in that brother or sister. Well, I just want to urge you that love means you'll go and do that. Love them like Christ would love them. Go to them. Have that hard conversation. Tough love is tough to do, but love doesn't care about its own self-comfort more than it cares about a brother. Okay, so so much more that we could unpack. I mean, you could go through our church covenant you could go through all of the one another's in Scripture and just look at how you might be tempted to love only in word or in this just kind of shallow way versus actually loving like the Lord loves and actually laying down your life and giving your all 
to that action. So listen to some of these. Bear each other's burdens. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Help evangelize and disciple each other's children. Gather with one another. Sing to one another. Be patient with one another. Honor one another. Instruct one another. Consider one another better than yourself. And on and on and on. Do we love like Jesus in every single one of those areas? Would we say that I lay down my life and I love without limitation and with deep affection in every single one of those areas? If you do, you're a way better Christian than I am. (laughs) I hope, in a sense, I hope, that you feel a little bit deflated here. In just those five ways, I fall short with my love. John says, love one another as Christ has loved you. Well, I don't. The call to love one another, the way that Jesus has asked us, is a high bar. I mean, it's like we're being asked to pole vault the Sears Tower. It's it's impossible. And sometimes our self-righteousness, we read something like verse 16, love one another as Christ who laid down his life. Oh, I can do that. As we dig into it, we're like, no, I don't. I don't love like Jesus. He has the perfect love of God. So I fall short. But I want to remind you in closing, just one more time, about the gospel. It's good news of grace. We don't strive to to love our brothers in order to be loved. We strive to love the brothers because we already are loved by God. We don't have to earn God's love. So when you fail to love the way that you know that you should, remember. Remember that Jesus has laid down his life for you. Remember the love that he does have for you, that he died for your sins. So when you inevitably fail, what do we do? Well, we've got to, I'm not backing my words with good works. What do you do? You go confess your sins to one another. Maybe that means going and telling that brother, I haven't loved you the way that I should. Maybe it means confessing that to someone else you trust. And it means confessing that sin to God. It is not just, it's not something we should be flipping about. It's not just okay that we don't love each other the way that God has asked us to love one another. We sin in this way, so confess it. And then what you do is you rest in God's good promises that he died for your sins, that you were forgiven by grace through faith alone. And when you rest, get right back up and try again. Go love each other. And remember this, that one day we will truly love like God. We will be in his presence and we will be made like him. And we will have a sinless, glorified body. And we will treat each other the way that we're supposed to treat each other. And that's going to be a glorious day. A glorious day full of worship and goodness. And with that, let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your love. And we ask you to help us to love one another in the same way. We know that we fall short, but we know that we are forgiven. Help us to get back up, to get into the fray, and to try all over again. And through it, would you make us more like you? And would you make this church more like you? And would you display your glory? By this, they will know that we are yours, by our love for one another. Would you work that in us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.